Profit, profit everywhere. Here's how one listener's buy low, sell high, thrifting hobby turned into over a quarter million dollars in sales and how you can get started today. What's up? What's up? Nick Loper here. Welcome to the Side Hustle Show because if you ain't flipping, you're slipping. Hat tip to Coach Dom Costa for that one. Reselling, it's a business model we keep coming back to because it's something anybody can do. Doesn't require a huge upfront investment. It's quick to get started. And perhaps most importantly, you can begin to see results and start multiplying your money right away. The most successful resellers are those who find a specific niche in which to operate, as you hear today's guest, Keely Stowicki, recommend in a moment. Keely's been in the reselling game for the last 15 years, starting when she was just a kid. Today, she hosts the Resale Revolution podcast, having turned her little side hustle hobby into $270,000 in sales of vintage and secondhand goods. Stick around to hear her tips for sourcing profitable inventory, the types of products she sees doing well today, and where she lists and markets her items for maximum exposure and profitability. Notes and links to all the resources mentioned in this episode, plus the full text summary with all of Keeley's top tips from the call, are at sidehustlenation.com slash Keeley. It's K-E-E-L-Y. I'll be back with my top takeaways from this chat with Keely after the interview. Ready? Let's do it. The biggest thing was starting out sourcing is figuring out what to source. And this can be a real anxiety for people because there's so many different categories. And the biggest thing is sourcing what you know and what you like. Because if you like it, chances are other people are going to like it as well. And you'll reduce the risk of buying things that don't necessarily have the profits if you understand the market. And so for me, when I first started out, like you said, when I was 12, 13 years old, I started out in in the horse industry. I had a huge passion for horses. So I was around it all the time. And I went to an auction with my mom and I bought a $50 saddle. I cleaned that saddle up. I put it on Craigslist and I made $150. I sold it for 150. So I had a hundred dollar profit. So I went back the next month and the rest is truly history. And for the longest time, I just stuck to the horse market. I could go to the auctions. I could go to big tax sales. And I just knew because I was around it all the time, what would sell well. And as you branch out, you can do your research. eBay has awesome sold filters. So if you're kind of wanting to get into a new category or expand, even for me with horses, I could go on there, use a sold filter, search up bits and look at the brands that were selling and see what they were selling for. And so as you branch out as a reseller, you can do your research and get a really good idea for what things are selling for. And that really helps reduce the risk, but using your gut feeling and any reseller you talk to, a lot of it's gut feeling because you don't always have time to look that item up. If you're just going to thrift stores, you can kind of use the sold filter to look at what the item is to make sure there's enough profit margin there. But really it's a lot of gut feeling and sticking to what you know and branching out carefully as you do your research. Is that awkward walking around thrift stores and being buried in the eBay app and trying to figure out like, well, what's this item really worth? Or imagine, are there other people in the store doing the same thing? It's truly the new normal. Every time I go to the thrift store, there are other people in there looking up things to resell and truly every time it's the new normal. And what's happening is there's a lot of booksellers and I'm kind of glad I'm not a bookseller because you use a scanner. And so people are getting kicked out of thrift stores and church sales because they're sitting there scanning books and people are getting offended by it. But I think it's really heading to be the new normal and it's becoming slightly more competitive because everyone's looking this stuff up, but it truly comes down to just buying what you know and what you like. And then you don't have to spend so much time looking it up and you have a better feeling when you pick it up and you know you you can make those margins on it. So you mentioned kind of tripling your money on that initial saddle purchase. Is that common? Is there a typical margin that you're shooting for on these flips? Yeah. So for eBay, I'm shooting for at least 50%. That's the lowest. If I'm not making 50%, it's not worth my time at all because there is time that goes, of course, you're at the thrift store, you're driving, 
you have to clean it up, you have to photograph it and list it and ship it and answer questions. So you truly want at least 50%. I shoot to make $10 on every item I sell. That's my happy place. If I'm making $10, that's $10 profit after my eBay fees and shipping costs. That's my happy place. There are items that I've made $500 on, $750 on, but those are going to be like the Hail Mary, like the Holy Grail of flips. And you're going to get those, but they're not as common. So if you stick to that mindset of making $10 every sale, you're doing quite well. Yeah, that's something that we heard from the flea market flipper, Rob Stevenson. He was like, I want to make a minimum $100 profit. And this was several years ago. He's probably higher now. I want to make a minimum $100 profit per item because of all the work that goes into that. And so you're saying, okay, if I can make $10 profit per item after all these fees and shipping costs at at least a 50% margin, that's going to be worth my while because I can do it in volume. Now, do you have consistent places that you're sourcing from where you can do it in volume? Because it's like, if I go to the store and I spend half an hour cruising around these different racks and I come away with one item or no items, maybe, because this was, you know, when I was doing Amazon FBA, you might walk away from that store empty handed. It's like, that is to me the biggest challenge in kind of a thrifting or resale business is like this consistent way to source inventory. Yeah. But see, for me, I've actually never had that problem with sourcing. Since I've kind of been out of selling horse items, I still go to the sales twice a year and pick up items I sell on eBay throughout the year. But when I'm going to the thrift store, I'm searching for vintage and higher brand name clothing it's very rare that I leave the thrift store with nothing. So I just went yesterday. I like to go on Mondays to my favorite one out in the Dowls. And I picked up about about 22 items. And I'm definitely going to make $10 to $12 in each one of those items. That's over $100 profit. And I was there for an hour and a half. Granted, I was there for an hour and a half and I got to take it home and list it. But for me, listing those clothing items... I can probably get them all listed another hour and a half. I steam clean them. doesn't take very long. The eBay app has gotten, oh my gosh. So when I first started selling on eBay, it took forever. I borrowed my mom's Rebel camera and we just took like non-professional pictures with that camera. Then we had to load those pictures onto my computer and then you had to go in and edit them and then put them on. Now I do it all with my iPhone. And it's truly amazing. It's just like you search something similar to it. You use that template. You change the description a little bit. You click on the photos. You take the pictures and they load in there instantly. So they don't exactly save to your phone anymore, which is kind of nice because I hated it taking up so much space on my computer. And so then they're just in there and you do the title and the description and you're just done. Like it's so incredibly fast now how quickly you can list. With clothing, you do have to add measurements, but I use an app on another website. It's called size, S-I-Z-E dot L-E. And it loads into a template, all the measurements. And then it also does the centimeters for your international buyers. And for those doing eBay who aren't selling internationally, you're really missing out because eBay has an awesome global shipping program where as a seller, you do nothing. You just enter into that program and they charge all the fees to your buyers and your buyers just deal with it. And you're creating so many more sales. I probably sell about 20 to 30% of my product overseas. Oh, interesting. So they make it, you just ship it to whatever eBay international shipping headquarters or something, and then they send it the rest of the way. Yeah. And they deal with all of the customs and everything like that. I've had, when I was doing horse items, I did have a beautiful hand braided horsehair Makati. It's like a long rein on a rawhide bozelle and it got caught up in customs. And because it was like a natural fiber item, they confiscated it. And in that case, they refunded him and let me keep the money. And it was, I was so grateful as a part of that program because it was like a $275 item that I would have been out. But eBay has a lot of seller and buyer protection. And so when stuff like that happens internationally, or even within the States, they're very fair in their dealings. And so as you grow as an eBay buyer, you kind of learn all the things they're looking for in the descriptions and the photos. So you can kind of avoid little problems and have things go favorably, you know, as a win-win for everybody. Have you ever run into 
buyers trying to scam you. It seems like in the, specifically in the sneaker reselling space, I've heard that people will claim, hey, these are fakes or hey, they were damaged. And it's like, it's just his word versus yours. And you're like, why? Well, I, I swear they were authentic. That's all I could do, you know? Yeah, I do tend to steer away from luxury goods because I hear that all the time. And I know we're speaking mostly about eBay, but Poshmark has their own way of authenticating items. And I hear a lot of complaints where buyers will swap them out. So they'll they'll take their fake one and swap it out for your real one and send their fake one back. So I haven't touched on those. And where I live, there's not a lot of people that donate those goods. So I don't have an outlet for getting luxury items. So I don't have a ton of experience with fraud or claims like that. I, I normally get, when I was first starting, I was shipping out fragile items. I would get a lot of broken things. And so I was dealing with shipping claims and I learned to do insurance. But since then I've become a professional at shipping fragile items. I recently just shipped out this very thin art glass horse. It was like eight inches tall and it arrived totally unbroken. Super proud of myself, but I've totally mastered shipping over the years. <laughs> That's good. I had one thing I shipped on eBay and it just shattered. I I obviously could have done a much better job of packaging it. So I just had to eat the hundred dollars or whatever it was. It was like, oh, just, just light it on fire. It was just such a I know, <laughs> frustrating I know. thing. That's why getting the extra insurance is really worth it. If you have something that's you're a little iffy about the postal service taking care of it. I had these beautiful deer figures. They, they were pretty tall, about 12 inches and the horns were all porcelain and it was just absolutely gorgeous set of three. And I packaged it immaculately. And I just had this feeling. I'm like, if something's going to get broken, the postal service is going to break this thing. And so I got the insurance and I'm so glad I did because the horns were broken when it arrived and I was able to claim it, refund them. And we were both okay. But I took pictures of it too, to show how I'd packaged it because I had heard from other sellers that this was a good way to prove that you packaged it well to the postal service when you file the claim. But even now, I think with the volume the postal service is doing, they're not bickering as much. Think about all the stuff we mail now, they have so much volume to deal with. Yeah, they're just, they want to move on to the next thing for sure. Yeah, and a $50 item, $100 item isn't worth them spending a bunch of time trying to look into. And so double back boxing things is really good. I used to work for Le Creuset out of college too. We were shipping really heavy cast iron cookware and fragile stoneware all over the world. For We had international buyers come in. And so I learned to double box and that four inch cushion all the way around. And that's how you avoid things getting broken. <laughs> so Mondays are your favorite day to go to the thrift store. Let me look over your shoulder. You're walking through the door. You go to the clothing rack looking for vintage items. What else goes on in there? You've got your phone out. I imagine you can scan stuff, but it's kind of hard to, if it's, if it's a unique one of a kind item, I imagine it can be kind of tricky to see like, well, what exactly is this? What did it sell for? Yeah. Yeah. So actually when I go into the thrift store, I go to the hard goods first because this takes less time and it's easier to spot. It takes a little less time than going through all the racks. So I'll go to the hard goods. I kind of check everything I like glasses. So glassword, like sets of glasses do really well for me. Inker, Hawking, Pyrex, sometimes the Corning ones. So I'll go into the kitchen aisle. I steer away from the little knickknack figures. They don't do as well as they used to. You have to think about the trends now. The younger generation are decluttering. We all saw this as resellers this fall and this winter. And so you got to think of things that function in the home. And those are the the real niche markets that are doing quite well right now. Large statement pieces of home decor that are vintage and funky, retro items, things that can still be used that are vintage. And lamps are also doing really well. That's another weird little spot. I have a guy who will rewire vintage lamps for me. And so it kind of adds value to them where they're, they're then one of a kind, they still work and they're safe to use in your home. But then when I go to the clothing, I'm just looking for funky textures and colors and patterns. Those tend to sell really well for me. I've gotten really good at looking at tags and being able to spot the fake vintage from the real vintage. And 
just last, it wasn't this week, but last week there was a vest and on it, it said Italy and things made in Italy and imported are normally a good quality. So I'm holding it up that had some like sparkly appliques on it and it looked very nineties and the tag looked vintage. And so I'm holding it, looking at it and I'm like, Oh, this is really cute. It's kind of nineties. It kind of fit into like the Britney Spears era. And then I noticed some crooked stitching on one of the shoulders. And I was like, oh, a sign of a poor quality import. And then the tag says Los Angeles, Italy, Hong Kong. (laughs) I'm like, okay. And the stitching is sewn through the letters on the tag. So they didn't leave enough room for the whole tag. And then the telltale sign of a cheap import inside next to the care tag, it said made in China. So I put it back. But that's the process. You know, you, you hold it up, you look at the style, you look at the condition, even in vintage clothing condition is truly everything in your home goods, in those antiques. If it's broken, it's been repaired. Don't take it home, put it back. And so when you're looking, you know, you can replace buttons, you can fix a loose seam, but you want to make sure there's no snags in the material, no heavy staining. You flip it over and then I put it in my cart if it's something that I kind of pre-approve of. And I go through the store, I go through all the aisles, I go through all the sizes. I don't tend to look at jeans or pants very often anymore. I look for overalls. So I'll kind of glance for coveralls and overalls. Those overalls do awesome in the fall and the spring. And they bring, you pay like $10 for them. And they're the ones where you make $50 on them. Interesting. Yeah, they're kind of one of those little, they're hard to find, but when you do, you're super happy and you're like, protecting them in your cart. (laughs) I look at skirts and dresses and shoes and handbags. And then at the very end, I'll go back through everything again, because you're kind of sensory overload with all the colors and everything you have to look at where you might miss something. So I look back through it for damage, put the, and in styles, you know, some of the things you find later might be better than the things you found earlier. So it's always good to double check and check those ones that were a little marginal and just take the best ones home with you. Did you know that roughly half of Side Hustle Nation hasn't started their side hustle yet? If that's you, I get it. Starting and building a business is tough. It takes more than just an idea. There are tons of moving parts, and it's a bit like trying to assemble your airplane in the middle of takeoff. Thankfully, our sponsor, Taylor Brands, is helping Side Hustle Show listeners make that leap and make it all a lot easier. Their comprehensive platform guides you through every step, making sure you have everything you need all in one place. Think of it like your behind-the-scenes partner for things like LLC formation, licenses and permits, getting an EIN, setting up your business bank account, bookkeeping and invoicing, insurance, logos, trademark protection, and a lot more. Taylor Brands helps you handle it all seamlessly. And to get you started, Side Hustle Show listeners get 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans when you use our link. That's taylorbrands.com slash side hustle. Taylor Brands, like a tailor for your clothes. T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash side hustle. Start your business journey today with the help of Taylor Brands. When you're hiring, it feels amazing to finally close out a job search and hit the ground running with your new hire. But what if you could get rid of the search part and just get matched with qualified candidates? Well, now you can with our sponsor, Indeed. It's simple. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. The matching and hiring platform is trusted by over 3.5 million businesses worldwide to connect with great talent faster, and 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. For my next hire, I'm using Indeed to tap into a talent pool of 350 million unique monthly visitors, and what else is cool is Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And how about this? Side Hustle Show listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Just go to Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Side Hustle Show. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now, as you're going through, are you typing in kind of keyword descriptions of these items or if there's a brand name you can punch that in like on the ebay app to see what similar things have sold for or if you've done it 
enough at this point where you just kind of like have a feeling for, oh, I think this will probably sell for 30 bucks? I have done this long enough that a lot of it, if it's a true vintage, it has like a union made tag in it. It's, I also look for materials like linen and silk and wool. I know those will do well, but there are certain brands, especially when I branch out into Poshmark, that I was double checking brands because you had new with tagged items and some of the stores have what they call star attractions or top sellers or whatever they want to call them. And so they're pricing them a little higher, but you can still have half off color tags. And so like yesterday, there was about five items. They were originally priced at $10. So they would have been $5, which is still a dollar over their average pricing system. And I looked them all up and they had new tags on them. And the manufacturer's suggested price was like $58, $79. And I'm like, oh, great. I'll be able to get 20 to 30 for them. And I'm paying five. But when I look them up, they were old enough styles that they weren't selling. And so as a new reseller, you can easily make the mistake of being like, oh, look at all these ones that are listed and their prices are high. But as soon as you hit the sold filter, you will see that none of them have sold. And that's that's truly the biggest mistake you can make is not hitting that sold filter to make sure there's a market for them because there might be a ton on there and it'll look like you're going to make a bunch of money, but the sell-through rate is very poor. Yeah, if there's not any demand for this stuff. Yeah, and for the style or the brand itself. And it, it happens in vintage, but for me, I am mainly an eBay seller, but I have other avenues for it because I've expanded my side hustle to be my full-time hustle. And so I know I'll have places to take vintage clothing. And because each item of vintage clothing is unique, it's unique in its size, its style, its color, its rarity, you're pretty certain you'll be able to get your, your money back at least if it goes through your sales avenues and you weren't able to get sold, you know, you could take it into your garage sale later and get your $4 back. Okay. I was going to ask what, what happens with the stuff that doesn't sell? So at the end of every season, it's a garage sale time. Yeah. I've done mystery boxes. Those have done well for me, but typically a garage sale is the best thing. You kind of just put $4, $5 on all your vintage items. And then whatever's left, I donate to the local senior center. They support the meals on wheel program. And so I like to kind of give back to them. And I also buy from them a lot. So it's like this, this trade-off. <laughs> okay, sure, sure. So you mentioned eBay, you mentioned Poshmark, any other go-to platforms to resell this stuff? You mentioned Craigslist back in the day. Yep. Craigslist is good for your larger items that you don't want to ship and kind of niche specific. If you're doing auto parts, sporting goods, electronics are a good place for that. Smaller things are a little tricky. The Facebook forms have blown up, especially with the introduction of the marketplace. I've sold a ton of little things on there that I didn't want to ship, or I just had a feeling that I could kind of get them out there locally. Again, it's like a comparable way avenue for Craigslist. So you can do Craigslist and you can do Facebook. And I always really recommend to resell people interested in reselling to start with things you already have and then kind of scale out from there. And there's always a way to scale the resale business. So if you're kind of doing well on eBay, you can jump into Poshmark and cross post. Poshmark just opened that home goods. And now I think they're opening another category. Someone said holiday. Yeah, it, that hasn't been announced yet, but they're expanding there. There's also apps like Depop and Mercari. I did a little bit on Depop that's mostly for vintage clothing. Macari's kind of another, you can sell anything on it. But truly eBay is king and I think it will continue to be king and their fees are so much lower than everybody else that it's just a no-brainer for starting there. Yeah, especially for the, the vintage stuff. Is like kind of that's where at least I think first place to go look. Yeah, besides Amazon, I believe eBay is the first place most people look for anything. <laughs> at least me. I buy... I'm not a big Amazon shopper. I truly buy all of my stuff that I can't find locally on eBay. What do they charge you to sell something through eBay? It averages around 9%, 9 to 14%, depending on the categories. If you have a store, you get reduced fees as well as free insertions for a monthly subscription. It starts out at about $10.00. That subscription is so worth it for the perks you get. The nice thing about opening is you, you can start an eBay account and then you can open a store. And when you pay the subscription to open a store on eBay, 
you get branding opportunities. You can, you can decorate your store with a logo and your cover photo. You can do Markdown Manager, which offers sale opportunities for putting your, your products on sale. And that really drives sales. You can also do emails through eBay and messages to your following and you can create that following because when you're being true to your own branding of your resale business, you'll have people gather around you that like the same sort of things you like and you can continually sell to them all the time because you're finding things that they like. And as soon as you get rolling with that, that's truly where your business becomes really effortless. Oh, interesting. So if you find a niche in a particular type of product you can really brand your whole eBay store around that. And then people can follow that. Hey, like if I bought from you before, I want to see what else you've got coming out next month. Like what else are you going to find? And so you're not entirely relying on eBay search, but people might do repeat business with you. Yeah. And I've, I've bought this way and I've sold this way. When I was in horses, there was a, he did handmade horsehair items and he just had a beautiful store and he would release new items every month and send out an email to his following. And I would buy things based off that email. And so when I started my own store with my horse items and now my vintage items and vintage clothing, I do the same thing. And I get a lot of repeat buyers because they may not necessarily be shopping, but as soon as you present it to them, they're like, oh yeah, I need to have that. And that's why Poshmark, you're creating a following on Poshmark. And the more followers you get, the more successful you are. But with branding also comes social media sharing. And so I just talked about this on my podcast yesterday. You can create a Facebook page around whatever you're selling and get followers there. And you can do Facebook Lives and sell your items through Facebook Lives. Just like, I don't know if you remember the Lulu Row multi-level marketing company, those consultants were selling their products through lives. But this is like a whole new way to sell secondhand goods is through Facebook lives. And it just kind of blew my mind when I heard about this. And I'm going to branch out into it as well. Because as a reseller, you're just looking to get it out to your following and make a sale so you can go buy something else. Yeah, that's funny. You mentioned LuLaRoe. I don't know if it was that one or if it was a different, maybe they started their own clothing brand or something. But it was like, yeah, totally. I met this couple at FinCon last year and it was like, yeah, they were doing this Facebook live and they were having the husband like cross-dressing and trying on all these different items. And they were just like having a blast with it. And the audience was like, they couldn't process the orders fast enough. It was like, you know, they had built a really substantial business off of that. Maybe that's what it started at. Maybe they started with LuLaRoe or one of these other companies. And then when that went away or what, you know, whatever happened, like they created their own brand or like, Hey, we have the audience who loves this stuff. Maybe we can go and create our own brand of clothing or something like that. So lots of different ways that you can go, especially if you stick to a particular thing, instead of being, when I, when I was doing the Amazon flipping, it was like, I, there was no branding involved. It's just like, I'll just scan whatever looks profitable and, and go to town. But it makes sense to niche down a little bit. Yeah. Well, it just makes it a hard game. You know, when you go into a store, you go to a state sale or garage sale, there's so much stuff. And for people getting started, are beginning in their journey of resale, that can be really overwhelming. You don't have any idea what to buy. You might just be grabbing things because you think it will work, but and then you start having losses because you, you don't know what to buy. But if you stick to what you know and what you like, you're, you're going to be do really well. And then you're going to be excited about it. I see so many people crash and burn with the Amazon because they're just buying whatever and you don't have a passion for it. But for me, I have such a passion behind what I buy. And I just get so excited when I buy it. And I'm so excited when people buy it from me because I'm sharing that love of these secondhand goods. And that's what will keep you going for decades. Like it has my business. Do you ever find yourself being like, no, this is too good to sell. I got to keep this for myself. Oh yeah. I have a collection of vintage clothing items to die for, but I truly have a rule for myself. So I don't become too much of a collector, get over into the hoarding side of things. So when I bring something new in, something old has to go. And, and it can be tough sometimes. And sometimes I just kind of don't follow that rule. And then later I'll be like, okay, I got to purge 10 things. But I'm pretty good because you like to have new things all the time. And so I kind of let things go. So I've, I've gotten pretty good at it. <laughs> yeah, that's a good rule. One in, one out. That makes sense. And when you're rolling up to the, to the checkout aisle with your couple hundred dollars worth of stuff, at the thrift store, are there like volume discounts at all? Or do you have relationships? If you're in there every week, like they got to know you, is there like 
a, a reseller discount program or inventory? I'm curious if it's just like, oh, this is the price and take it or leave it. Well, a lot of times they get so many volunteers in there that they don't necessarily recognize you anymore. And there's a lot of employee turnover at thrift stores like that. There is one store I go to and they're always kind of, they have, when you donate, you get a coupon. And so I do donate to them a lot, but I don't always get the coupon. And so sometimes he'll see me in the store and he'll run up and give me a coupon, but it's only for like a item. So it's not a huge savings, but I do have one store I work with and I have helped them list things on eBay in exchange for getting kind of a volunteer employee discounts. So I get half off every time I shop there and that does help, but I do offer them tremendous value in in trade for getting a discount. Is there anything you're doing to make your listings stand out once you have them? It seems very time consuming, the the sourcing and now having to prep these items for sale. Maybe that's just doing your steam clean and your photography, but sometimes it's like, like you say, we got to replace a button or we got to, you know, stitch this up. There's some labor that goes into it. There's some value add that goes into it. We should rephrase that. But what, if anything, are you doing to make your listings stand out from everybody else on eBay, on Poshmark? For me, it's truly the selection of the items. Because when you're doing vintage and vintage household goods and vintage clothing, the item itself is going to stand out. And so it's just making sure that your photography is clean. It's extremely well lit. Like you can almost never have too much lighting when it comes to photographing items. And so I have like three light boxes and a light ring on my items when I photograph them. I also have a pretty unique studio. eBay is really pushing people to do the white backgrounds to look clean and professional, but I highly disagree with that. And so when I do my photos, I have this vintage barnwood door that I picked up at a garage sale for 15 bucks. And then I have this fake giant fake plant and some greenery. And so I try to stage them with lifestyle photography. So it looks like it's already in your home and people can see how it would look staged in in their home because if you have a white background that's so sterile then you're just like oh there's an item but if you have this picture that evokes emotion that's a whole new level of selling and also having the description be really tight because i shop a lot on ebay i see a lot of sellers they don't even offer measurements or what the material is and I'm lazy. I don't want to have to email them and be like, what is this made out of? Or what are the measurements? So I move on. And so I recognize that as being a buyer. So when I sell, I make sure my descriptions and my title is clean and descriptive. So there's no question in the buyer's mind. This also is really important for reducing returns. Because when we first started on eBay, you could opt out of even accepting any returns. And now you kind of, they're kind of pressuring sellers to accept more returns. And my return rate is literally zero because I'm so good at photographing. I'm so tight with my descriptions and my customer service and answering questions that buyers don't have to double guess what they're buying. And that is incredibly important. And it was size.ly was the sizing app. So instead of having to type all this stuff in, this thing makes it a little bit easier for you? Yeah, it's S-I-Z-E dot L-Y and it'll come up in any Google search. They're really trying to promote that one. And it's just been a game changer because there's a photo. So there's like all these templates of shorts and pants and jackets and whatever, skirts. And it shows the measurements on there and you just type in what they actually are and then it'll generate a photo And so now instead of it being a list that you have to type in, it's now a a photo for someone to be like, oh, they measured it from this seam to this seam for the length. And it's a total game changer for doing measurements because before it was like, well, how did you actually measure it? And then they'll message you and be like, hey, can you provide a photo of how you measured it? Or you were having to provide a photo of how you measured it because everyone measures differently. And now it's kind of standardized how we provide measurements. How much do you have an inventory at any given time now that you're asking about people, well, they're going to message me about this specific item. And I'm thinking like that is 25 pairs of shorts deep in the closet right now. What, what exactly, which item were they talking about? Like, is there a tagging system? I'm curious about the, uh, the inventory management system. Okay. So 
I've perfected this as well. It's going to blow your mind because I don't feel like enough people are doing it. Do you remember when the pharmacies used to have all of the prescriptions hanging in little baggies on a rack? That's what I do. And so to keep my items super clean, I have a double bar clothing rack. And then I have these giant, oh, they're probably like 20 by 20 inch Ziploc bags on hangers. And they hang on this rack. And then I have them numbered. And so I'll have this inventory sheet that has my numbers on it. And I can be like, okay, this item's number, whatever. But I also am very familiar with the colors. So I can just look at these clear bags on this double-sided rack and just grab them. It's super fast for me. Some things I do still have in bins if they're too heavy, but I'm only keeping about three to 400 items in the only, I mean, it's still a lot, but it's not that daunting because you can have shorts, you know, in one or it just depends on how you want to do it. But if you have clear bins that are labeled, it's so easy to find things. And I have big husky racks. So I just have all the bins on these racks along with my double-sided rack. Okay. And then that I imagine allows you to do batch shipping. Are you going to the post office every day? Are they picking up from you? What does the shipping look like? I only am about a mile away from a Dropbox for my shipping items. So I just take it in the morning on the way to the gym. You can have them pick up from you, but the pickup time is before my business opens. And so it's easier just for me to drop it off. I don't utilize the batch shipping option because I'm shipping a lot of various things. So I like to go one by one and ship it, put the label on it and send it out. I feel like this is how a lot of sellers end up with the old swaparoo where they send the wrong item to the wrong person kind of thing. And so if you do it one by one, you avoid that. I've actually bought things even recently that people have done that. And I get this thing and I'm like, I didn't buy this. And then they contact you like, oh no, I sent you the wrong thing. <laughs> and like that, all your margin disappears. Oh, truly. That's, that's the worst thing. And sometimes they'll just be like, oh, I'll just let you guys keep it and refund both of you. And then you're stuck with an item you didn't buy. <laughs> if you travel a lot for work or for vacation, you might be familiar with that feeling you get knowing you're leaving your space unused for long periods of time and you're still paying for that privilege. But hosting on Airbnb means you don't have to leave your home sitting empty when you're away. Being an Airbnb host isn't just a way to earn some extra cash. It's a chance to share your space and make a guest's vacation all the more memorable. You might be thinking, eh, maybe my place isn't the right fit, but don't write it off just yet. Your potential Airbnb might be right in front of you. Whether it's a spare room or even your entire home, there's an opportunity waiting. Airbnb turns your home into a practical and even profitable venture. We just got back from a family trip to Hawaii where we stayed in a great Airbnb, but our place back home could have been a highlight to somebody else's travels, and we could have used the extra cash to help pay for the trip. So if you're curious about hosting on Airbnb, find out how much your space could be worth by visiting airbnb.com slash host. Once again, that's airbnb.com slash host. Do you do free shipping on eBay or do you... You make the buyer or like tack on a little bit for the buyer. Yeah. So shipping's a big deal. I do not offer free shipping. And there's a huge debate about this, whether, oh, you should be offering free shipping. I think the free shipping is works if you're drop shipping or doing really competitive items because then it's like, oh, free shipping, get a better deal. So my, because my items are vintage and more unique, my method of pricing and shipping is I look up what the most comparable items are selling for. I mark it up 20 to 30%. And then I take offers and 98% of my items are buy it now. And occasionally I'll do an auction on something I just want to get rid of or something more unique, but it's very rare. And then the eBay app has gone really, really good with their calculated shipping. And so when I'm listing, I, I weigh the item. And I add a few ounces depending on if it needs to go in a box or if it's going in an envelope because a box will could be up to a pound more. So you have to calculate that into when you're, you're adding your shipping into your listing. And I always offer a flat rate option and a priority option or a first class. So it kind of gets tricky because it's based on the weight. Anything under 16 ounces can go first class. And so I just do it first class. If it's over a pound, 
then I know I need to offer that priority option or the flat rate. But it has to fit in a flat rate box. So you have to have all these packaging and make sure shipping is the one thing that's complicated. But once you have it down, it's so easy. But eBay's made it that it's not eating into your margins anymore because of the way they calculate it. And eBay now charges fees on shipping, which is kind of a bummer. But they do this because of people I know. I never did it. But they were charging like $0.99 cents for an item and then $20 for shipping to avoid final value fees. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. <laughs> like We're going to charge you a percentage on the sale, but not on the shipping. Okay, well, the sh- we'll give it to you for free, but it's 100 bucks to ship. Exactly. So people were getting sneaky on it. And that's why they do that. But eBay actually, when they calculate the shipping, they add their percentage into what they charge your buyer. And so it's become so much easier to, as a seller, you don't have to worry about it anymore as long as you're accurately weighing your item and you're counting in for your packaging. It's been a couple of years since I was selling on eBay, but I always did free shipping. I just kind of like marked up the item and then made it free shipping because my theory was like, well, that will make it a more attractive item. But maybe I wasn't selling unique enough stuff where it's like, I'm willing to pay the shipping cost on top of it. Yeah, it's really surprising what people will pay to ship something when it's unique. See, the mentality behind marking it up 20 to 30% and taking offers is that generally they offers 20 to 30% lower. So then you're right around the comparable price or they're making an offer. So them as a buyer think that they're adding in free shipping, like, oh, shipping's $10. So I'm going to offer $10 less. And now I have free shipping. And so it kind of makes them feel like they're getting a good deal without into your profit margins by offering free shipping. Because then when you get into returns, they want to return it. Now you're, you offered free shipping. So you're out shipping. Instead, when they return it, you can say, okay, I'll refund you the amount, but not shipping. So at least you weren't out shipping and you got your item back and you refunded for just the item. Yeah. So you mentioned like the, the book reselling thing, that seems to be a really popular place to get started, just to dip your toes in it, just because every item has that universal barcode where it's like, okay, I I can scan this. And then I know it's going to be the same as the guy down the street versus the clothing. It's like a different brand, a different style, a different size, like a lot of different condition, lots of different variables that go into it. And then the other thing that has become more popular is like this vintage furniture refinishing or like reclaimed wood type of farmhouse look, which is like, I'm going to acquire this stuff free or very inexpensively, put a lot of labor into it and then try and resell it. But that runs into the problem, like this is a heavy, like maybe it's a dresser or something. Like it's really heavy and bulky and potentially fragile to ship. So um, I don't know if you've ever dealt with that. Yes, yes. So I get so excited about this topic because this is a huge market right now, especially the ladies where the guys kind of have sneakers and video games and books to be interested in. Furniture is like the ladies game. And you can truly go to a garage sale, pick up a dresser, like an ugly brown vintage style dresser, spend $20 on it, take it home. And the chalk paint now, I always use the Dixie Belle chalk paint. It's truly the best. I've tested so many different lines of chalk paint. I am the worst painter. My mom is actually a professional house painter and I did not get that skill, but I can slap two coats of paint on this wax it or glaze it and clear coat it and have a piece that's going to sell for $180. Hobby Lobby is a great place to get replacement knobs and handles. And this will add a ton of value to the piece, but you sell it on Craigslist and on the local Facebook forms. So you don't have to pay fees. People just come and pick it up or you can deliver it if you have the vehicle to do so. But there's a market in it because Ikea, Ikea is huge. And if you can take these old solid wood pieces of furniture that are better quality than Ikea pieces and make them gorgeous with basically no skill because the paints are that easy to use and then make a couple hundred dollars profit per piece. It's the ultimate side hustle. I I love, I've done a ton of furniture. I don't know. This sounds more interesting to me. (laughs) Not to knock like the the clothing thing, just because I'm not into clothes that much, but like, okay, if you could do this, make a hundred bucks a week, you know, you could do one of these every month, like whatever, whatever schedule that you're, you're comfortable with. Can I have a little project going in the garage? That could be an interesting one for sure. And I'm looking at the, <laughs> the this old solid wood dresser in, in our uh, bedroom that could definitely use, use some help. So I'm like, Oh, maybe there's something here. Yeah. Yeah. You can go on Pinterest and get all these ideas. And there's so many 
outlets out there for showing you how to the techniques to do different things. So it's really a great creative outlet, but you can paint an entire dresser and have it done in a matter of two hours and make $150 on it, no problem. And because you, you're putting your artistry and creative abilities into it, each piece is unique. So they sell really well. And there was a gal locally who her business was called Vaguely Vintage. And she created a small following. And as soon as she photographed that piece, it was sold. And people were buying multiple pieces from her. And it was just, she was making a couple thousand dollars a month doing that. Yeah, that's a perfect side hustle. Yeah. I don't like painting very much, but if I can do it, anybody else can do it because I am not a painter. <laughs> well, it goes to show there's a, there's a niche for everything. Like you said, start with what you're interested in, what you kind of already have a feeling for, what you know, what you're excited about. And then you can kind of see what sells, what doesn't sell, where there's margin, where you can add value, where to go from there. And on that note, I'm curious, where do you see this going? I mean, you're putting up some impressive sales numbers for what started as a little side hustle hobby, but curious to see where you want to take this thing. So I'm taking my love of this and I'm trying, I'm working towards inspiring other ladies to do it as well, because I come from multi-level marketing and nothing against multi-level marketing, but it's hard and it wasn't necessarily my passion. And so when I went back to my love of reselling horse related items and found that again and was able, it just exploded and it gave me the freedom to set my own schedule and be creative and be excited about my work again. And I'm branching out to share that with people through creating courses on how to do this, everything from selling on eBay to Poshmark. And I want to get into showing people how to refinish the furniture and just kind of change their, you know, what they're doing into something they really love. I like it. ResaleRevolutionNow.com. You can check Keely out over there. Also, check out the Resale Revolution podcast. Are you doing daily for this thing? I am. It's insane. Very ambitious. I live this lifestyle every day. Like, it's <laughs> all I ever think about is resale and vintage items. So, I have so many different things. They're short podcasts, nowhere near as long as yours. Normally, about seven to 18 minutes are kind of my longer ones, but it just kind of talks about what I found, little tips, things I'm seeing happen in the antiques industry because that market's really changing. And so when I tell people about resale, they're like, oh, I'll go out and buy China and silver plate and all these antique knickknacks that used to be really valuable to say my grandparents. And now the market's flatlined. And so I'm trying to help them recognize what's selling and what what's trending in the vintage market. And that's really where my passion is and what I'm doing every day. Yeah. Vintage, good. Antique, not so good. Keely, really appreciate you reaching out and joining me. Again, you can check her out, resalerevolutionnow.com. Let's wrap this thing up with your number one tip for Side Hustle Nation. My number one tip is to start with stuff you already own. And do not borrow money to build your business. I have been in multiple businesses that have grown to six figures. And my biggest lesson is do not borrow money and start small and kind of grow as you can and don't get over your head with that. That's the biggest lesson I've learned in all my businesses. And I will preach that until the day I die. <laughs> Fair enough. Sounds <laughs> like there's another story there, but we'll save it for another day. Keely, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me and we'll catch up with you soon. All right, my top three takeaways from this call with Keely. Number one is to start with what you own and to start with what you know. Just because vintage clothing has been a good niche for Keely doesn't mean it's gonna be a good niche for you. Just because other people are making money refinishing and flipping furniture doesn't mean it'll be a good niche for you. Of course, you tend to learn more and develop a passion for certain niches and products over time through working with them. But if you're just starting out, start with what you know. For me, that might be products like ski gear. Maybe there's a market for nice, used, gently used brand name jackets. Or maybe there's a market for used equipment, especially if you could fix up the edges or the bases. That's takeaway number one. Start with what you know, at least what you care about, and then branch out from there. Takeaway number two is to mind your margins and make it worth your while. When Keely makes a purchase, she knows exactly how much she expects to make from that item. Having set rules or guidelines going in makes your sourcing easier. 
Each item either meets that criteria or it doesn't. And you get to decide how much profit to shoot for. There's a guest post on the Side Hustle Nation blog about flipping sneakers. And the author said he started out reselling t-shirts and making 10 bucks a piece. It was great, but for him, it was a lot of work sourcing, listing, and shipping each item. So he went back to the drawing board and found a product, limited release sneakers in his case, where he can make $100 or more per item. And as you get going into this, I think you'll have a better sense of the work required, whether or not it's fun and interesting to you, and what products and price points make it worth your while. Takeaway number three is to multiply money and keep sourcing. I see thrifting done right as a way to multiply money quickly and at relatively low risk. If you can take $10 and turn it into $20 or $30, you can take $100 and turn it into $200 or $300, and that is perhaps the most recession-proof skill there is. Investing in inventory you're confident is worth significantly more than you pay for it is a much faster path to build up cash than traditional investing, although there's certainly some work that goes along with it, as you heard in this episode. Thrifting definitely isn't passive, but you can see how it becomes routine and systemized as you build it up. Maybe it makes sense to start like Ryan Finley suggested way back in episode 72 with a specific goal in mind. In his case, I believe it was to find 50 or $100 profit a day on Craigslist. That was his business, reselling stuff from Craigslist. Could you find an extra $500 a month worth of reselling profit in your town? I bet with a little effort, you can do it. That's how Keeley started with a goal of $500 a month, and it turned into a pretty serious operation. So that's takeaway number three. Think about it as a way to multiply the money. Once again, notes and links to all the resources mentioned in this episode, plus the full text summary with all of Keeley's top tips from the call, are at sidehustlenation.com slash Keeley. It's K-E-E-L-Y. That's it for me. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, let's go out there and make something happen, and I'll catch you in the next edition of The Side Hustle Show. Hustle on.